But I'm going to teach you some Latin at the beginning of this. Because you can see on the screen behind me, Zechariah's Christmas Advent. Sure, right? See the Advent, a little bit italicized. Advent, ready? Here we go. Latin instruction number or 101. Latin for Advent comes from Adventus. That's the Latin form of it. And it means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. You ready? You're learning Latin. How exciting on a Saturday or a Sunday or a World Wide Web. You come to church and you learn Latin. Churches all over the world begin today to celebrate the Advent. This weekend, it's the coming of Jesus Christ. It begins each year four Sundays, four weekends before Christmas. This is the weekend that Advent begins. But have you ever noticed that the word Advent forms the root for our word adventure? Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that. I thought about that this last week. Began to do a little research on it. I thought, well, that's really interesting. Adventure, our word, comes from the Latin word adventurus, and it means something that is about to happen. So you've got both definitions in front of you. Advent is the, is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Adventurus, something is about to happen. This sermon series that we're beginning this weekend is about four adventures that were brought about by angelic visits that prepared them for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at the first one. It centers on a very humble country priest named Zechariah. Now let me give you some background. It was a very dark, a very hopeless time. So let's get your Bibles out. You've got to be in the Bible. If you did not bring your Bible, grab one of those right in front of you. They're blue. It's the English Standard Version. Go to the New Testament. It's a little bit towards the right of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, this entire message. And you get to verse 5, if you've got your Bibles open, you're already there. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, you remember what I just said. I'm, I'm giving you the backdrop. It was a very dark, it was a very hopeless time. This was Herod the Great, not Herod who was on the throne when Jesus was crucified. This is his father, Herod the Great. He was a brilliant, wicked king. He was despised by the Jewish people. He was an Edomite. An Edomite was somebody that was descended from Esau, cursed by God. He was a half-Jew. So you've got Herod the Great despised by the Jews, and he was put onto the throne by Rome. You see, Rome's strategy, Rome is the superpower of the day, Rome's strategy was to conquer nations and then install into power somebody who's going to be loyal to Roman rule. Rome liked Herod. They liked him for a lot of reasons. Gave him a lot of latitude. They li- he liked him because he was loyal, but he was also a brilliant strategist. He was really a very brilliant king. He just happened to be so evil. But Augustus, you want to know how evil he was, Augustus, he was a Roman emperor. He's the one that sent out the census. They got Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem. Augustus once said of Herod the Great, quote, it is better to be Herod's hog than to be his son. You know why he said that? 
Well, Herod was a ruthless protector of his throne. He had three of his own sons killed. He had, a, he had, a, he had Israel's high priest, his name was Aristobulus, drowned. Can you imagine that? The high priest of Israel, he had him drowned, and he happened to be his wife's brother. This is not good. His wife had a problem, so he had his wife killed. She was his favorite of ten wives. She complained that he killed her brother, Aristobulus. He had her killed. And then because we all know, or at least theoretically, that mother-in-laws can be difficult. I didn't say that. That's his history. Mine's wonderful. He had her killed as well. Something I would never do. Often. He was a ruthless protector of his throne. You know what he did on his deathbed? This is true. This is all history that I'm telling you. He ordered on his deathbed, when he died, that all of the distinguished citizens in Jerusalem would be rounded up, put into a room, into a cathedral, rather an arena, and then killed. When the horn blew that Herod had died, his order was that all of these elite citizens would be killed. You know why he did that? Because he knew nobody was going to mourn his death. So in order to create, facilitate sufficient mourning in Jerusalem, he was going to kill all of these people. When he died, thankfully, the order was never carried out. But his worst, worst murderous act ever was his order, you know it, it's in the Bible, to kill all of the male infants in that little town of Bethlehem to protect his throne from the prophesied birth of the king of Jews. Listen, it was a dark and a terrible and a hopeless time in Israel. And the contrast to Zechariah the priest couldn't be any more stark. Look at what it says again, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and now we're introduced to the man of adventure, was a priest named Zechariah. Now that's a common name. It's a common priestly name. Now names are important. You need to know what Zechariah's name means. It means the Lord has remembered. And that's an appropriate name for all of what I just explained to you, what was going on in Jerusalem in Israel. It was important for this. The Lord has remembered. Listen, there had been no record of God's revelations to his people, the Jewish people, for over 483 years. Almost 500 years, God was silent. Zechariah was one of about 20,000 priests in that day. They all served at the temple of God. He wasn't part of the corrupt, wealthy, priestly aristocracy. He was a common country priest. You see, every direct male descendant of Israel's first high priest, Aaron, brother of Moses, was eligible to be a priest. John the Baptist turned it down. He could have been a priest. He chose not to. But not only was Zechariah descended from Aaron, his wife Elizabeth was as well. And Luke gives us a brief biographical sketch of this incredible couple. Look what it says, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So number one, they're a godly couple. This couple loved the Lord. They were right with God, meaning that God had taken away their sins and made them righteous. He had given them 
purity, given them forgiveness, given them a place in his family. Not only were they made righteous by faith, Romans 4, that's how Abraham was made righteous, credited to him by faith. They're made righteous by faith. Look what it says. They walked righteously. They lived righteously. The word of God was important to them. They were kind people. They were loving people. They were godly people. This is an amazing couple. But Luke gives us even more information. They were a childless couple. They had no child, verse 6, because Elizabeth was barren. Now, ladies, I want you to hear this. In biblical days, even more than today, it was crushingly painful to be unable to have children. Now, if you're under 18 years old, that doesn't sound so bad, right? But if you're a woman, back in that day, to be unable to have children, you would have been looked at as being cursed by God, having done something so bad that God closes up your womb and won't give you children. That's how the Jewish people looked at a barren woman. Very, very terribly unkind and very poor theology. Do you remember Leah, the wife of Jacob, called uh, barrenness a misery? That's what she called the inability to have children. Hannah, do you remember Hannah who wept bitterly, the mother of Samuel, wept bitterly over her condition? Rabbis, they were the Jewish leaders. They made it infinitely worse. They taught, quote, a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and has no child was not even welcome in God's presence. That was what the rabbis taught. Barrenness, by the way, in Judaism, that's the religion of the Jews, barrenness was actually legal grounds in a Jewish court to divorce. Adding to all of that, Luke tells us that the cause of the barrenness was Elizabeth. Look what it says again in verse 6. They had no child. Why? Because Elizabeth was barren. I don't know how Luke knew that. He was a doctor, but apparently God had given him that insight. But look at the third part of this biographical sketch. They were an elderly couple, verse 7. Both were advanced in years. They're old. They're way past childbearing age. There's no hope in them at all for a child. But God would remember, remember Zechariah's name? And he would keep his promise. You know what Elizabeth's name means? It means the absolute, absolutely reliable God. So God would remember, he would keep his promise because he was and is and always will be reliable. And look at verse 8. Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now you remember I told you there's 20,000 priests when Jesus was on this planet, was on earth. But they were divided into 24 divisions, and each division had around 1,000 priests each. And every one of those divisions, each and every one of them, served one week in the temple twice a year. So cumulatively, twice a year, one week at a time. And they prepared the, the sacrifices, is what a priest would do. They served as guards, inspectors, making sure that the lambs were spotless, they served as janitors, keeping the temple and the precincts clean. They sang on the worship team as singers, and they played the lyres and the flutes and the lutes and the 
all the other instruments, and I don't even know what they were. They were the musicians. So priests were chosen every day, each day, daily, to oversee the offerings of the burnt offering. That's what covered Israel's sins, morning and evening, twice a day. And during those offerings, they would take a one-year-old spotless lamb, and they would sacrifice that lamb, and they would take some of the blood, and they would sprinkle it against the altar in the priest's courts. And it would symbolize that God had accepted that offering and had forgiven them. And these priests would take an offering of flour and oil and they would put it on the altar. And then they would put a drink offering of wine. They did that twice a day, every day, morning and evening. And before the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice, they would take, one priest would take incense and go into the altar, into the holy place. And they would burn that incense signifying, symbolizing that the prayers of all of Israel had risen up to, the, to God and he found them favorable. Now you need to understand this. You need to understand the, the layout of the temple. You walk up 15 steps and you're on this huge, huge foundation called the Court of Gentiles. could hold 35 to 40,000 people. Massive. You walk through huge gates, massive gates, tall and wide. It took 20 men or so to close them and open them, some of these gates. They were so heavy and so big. And you go into the court of the women, and that's as far as a Gentile could go, was the court of Gentiles. But Jewish women can now go, along with men, Jewish men, into the court of the women. And that was as far as the women could go. And then the court of Israel when there was a railing in the court of Israel that separated the court of Israel to the court of priests. And that was as far as a non-priest Jewish man could go. And inside, interior, in the center of the court of the priests was this sanctuary. And you walk into the first room of the sanctuary, that's the holy place. And you walk through this thick, massive curtain into the most holy place. And only once a year could one person ever go into the most holy place. And that was a high priest on the Day of Atonement. But every day, in the morning before the sacrifice... And in the evening after the sacrifice, one of the priests would go into the holy place with coals from the altar and incense in their pouch, put the coals into the basin of the altar and put the incense on it and burn it to the Lord. And they would choose that priest by casting lots. It was what every priest lived for. It was what every priest wanted. Lots of priests never got a chance to do it, but you can only do it once in your lifetime. Zechariah, the lot fell on him. It's the evening sacrifice. He walks into the holy place. He walks to the center of the far end before you get to the curtain where he puts and dumps the coals from the altar where the sacrifice was made into the golden altar of incense and before him was that thick curtain it's embroidered with cherubim it's woven in scarlet blue and purple gold and facing the curtain on his left was the table of showbread on the right was the golden candlestick and Zechariah would have purified the altar and afterwards, on his right, the golden candlestick. 
He would have purified that as well. Then he would have then purified uh, the altar again and spread the coals and the incense and let the smoke rise up. These were the prayers of the people of Israel to their God. Now normally, normally, after having done that, he had completed his service, he would have turned around, come back out of the holy place, walked up to that rail where all of the men of Jewish of of Jewish descent were waiting, and there he would pray over them a blessing from Aaron. He never came out, or at least not immediately. Look what happens, verse, verse 10. They were praying outside at the hour of incense. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, you need to understand what these words mean. Troubled doesn't mean that you're late to school and you know you're going to get in trouble. Troubled here is a Greek verb. It means startled, like jumping out of your sandals startled. It means really spooked. Fear fell upon him is not anxiety, it's not worry, it's terror. So a better translation is that terror seized Zechariah in its grip and he was scared out of his mind. And why wouldn't he be scared? This was Gabriel, the last angel of God to ever appear in the Old Testament. He's the first one to appear in the New Testament. And there's been no priest as far back as anybody can remember that had ever seen an angel or heard from God. It's been nearly 500 years since an angel of God had appeared to anybody. Angels appearing just didn't happen anymore, but it did that day. And how beautiful, look at this, every word matters in the word of God. How beautiful that even the position of Gabriel in the holy place is given to us. Look what it says, he's at the right side of the altar. That's the side of favor and blessing. It's not the side of conquest. Makes Romans 8, verse 34, so comforting. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is the side of blessing. This is the side of I'm for you, not against you. That's the left side. Gabriel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, verse 13, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now I'm going to tell you something that's implied in the story, that's made clear in verse 13. When Gabriel said, your prayer has been heard, they'd been praying for a long time for a child. Who would take away the reproach of Elizabeth's barrenness. Zechariah, Gabriel says, your prayers have risen to God like the incense that you sprinkled over the coals in that altar of incense. It's risen to God, he has heard you, and he's going to grant you your prayer. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. All right, now we're getting to the fun part. 
This is all giving you some backdrop. Let's return. Do it with me. Ready? Let's go back to the way we began this message. With the words Advent and Adventure. Recall that Advent means coming or arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. And remember, its related word, the root word of adventure is Advent. Its related word means something that is about to happen. What is about to happen is a second, or rather, the first Advent. The coming of Jesus Christ. What's going to happen for us while we celebrate the Advent? We're celebrating that Christ will come again. The second Advent, where he promises in Revelation 22. By the way, this is the second to last verse in all of the Bible. And in it is a quote from Jesus. John writes, he who testifies to these things says, quote from Jesus, surely I am coming. That's the word Advent. I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So we're celebrating the second advent of Christ, that he will come again. So listen, Christmas doesn't end in the celebration of the birth of the Son of God. It goes through the celebration of the birth of the Son of God to get to the celebration that we know he's coming back again. And he's going to come back for his people. And I would suggest that in this advent season... That you and I, Christian brother and sister, I'm only, I'm only speaking to the Christians. I would suggest that you and I have the same exact mission that John had. John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they were about to have. What was that mission? Now look at verse 16. I'm going to give you three ways that we celebrate the same mission. But look at verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, John will. And John will go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Christian, brother and sister, it's our time to do the same thing. And Christmas is a time to remember that this is our adventure. And Gabriel's message to Zechariah is an opportunity to recall just how we live this great adventure. Let me give you three ways, and now we're at the meat of the message. First is this, and are you ready? I want you to really deliberate with these. I want you to really think on these. Number one, we must be people of faith. And have really awesome ringtones. <laughs> that don't seem to stop. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. Worst is at a funeral. Don't ever lead a funeral and have your phone go off. It's like, hey, I just said it was a call from the beyond. <laughs> it, didn't go, it didn't go over very well. We must be people of faith. We can impact, now listen, we can impact the unbelieving world as well as the church, by our faith. Now, when I say people of faith, I don't mean, well, we all got to be Christians. Now, I'm not saying that, although that's true theologically. We do need to be in Christ. We do need to put our faith in him. Listen, we need to be people of robust faith, whose faith is growing, whose faith is getting stronger. But being a Christian, listen, I know this, 
But being a Christian does not mean that we are all full of faith. There's Christians who are being saved by the skin of their teeth. They have very weak, anemic faith. That's not the faith that can impact the world. If we're going to impact the world, we must be people of faith. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Gabriel just said, You're going to have a baby, you and Elizabeth. God has heard your prayer. Zechariah, this godly priest, righteous, says, How can I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Listen, Zechariah, did you forget about Abraham and Sarah? You're supposed to be godly, you're supposed to be a priest. The stories of saints in bygone years should be feeling, fueling and motivating your faith in present tense years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. By the way, the phrase good news is the word evangelium. It's the gospel. I'm bringing you this gospel. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not what? Look at your text. You did not believe my words. I stand by God. My words are his words given to you. You didn't believe God's words. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now you remember, Zechariah is in the holy place. He's startled out of his sandals with Gabriel. Gabriel speaks this promise of blessing. But listen, outside, outside of the holy place, against the rail, are all of these Jewish men. Listen, through the porticos are all these Jewish women. They're watching on. They can hear. They're waiting for Zechariah to come out and do what every priest did after the morning sacrifice, after the evening sacrifice, and pray a blessing over all the people. They wanted to be part of the blessing. They're waiting for the priest to pray for them. He's not coming out. And they're not going to hear a blessing that evening. Because look at verse 62. Go all the way down, or at least a long ways down. Look what it indicates. Not only could Zechariah not speak, he couldn't even hear. They have to make signs to even get him to understand what they're saying. He's deaf and dumb. He is mute and deaf. God shut him up and then shut him off. Why? Because Gabriel told him, because you did not believe my words. Even Zechariah's faith must be strengthened. John the Baptist must grow up in a family where the parents model great faith. Parents, I'm speaking to us. You've got to model great faith for your children. And Zechariah's got to model this for John. Why? Because John is going to be the herald of the Savior of the world. Your, your children, my children, have to see us living out a growing, strengthening faith in our God. The world must see God's people trusting him in all circumstances. 
And the way our faith grows is exactly what Gabriel said. You've got to believe God's word. Listen, if you're trying to get a growing faith, Christian brother and sister, and you're not in the word of God, I'm telling you right now, it's a losing adventure, and it's not even an adventure. It won't work. Your faith grows from reading and believing God's word. It is living and active. It, in, it energizes and charges and shapes your faith. I'm going to tell you right now, the worst symptom that is prevalent in modern-day Christianity is little regard for God's word. It is plaguing our church. And it's plaguing so many churches that when people come to this church after coming from a liberal church or a church that is ecumenical, that doesn't preach centrally God's word, I hear the same thing. Listen, this is not boasting of anybody that's preaching here. I hear the same thing. I, can, I, I hear, they tell me all the time, we're hearing the word of God preached. It's like my heart is a sponge. I can't get enough. Listen, there's supposed to be a famine in the land when you take the word of God out. And it should make you hungry and it should make you thirsty. If your faith is to grow, Christian brother and sister, it will be through God's word. And you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. When you meditate on the law day and night, your leaf will not wither. Your fruit will come. Everything you do for God will prosper. But unlike you, the wicked, are like the chaff. And the wind will blow them away. Trials will blow them away. You got to take God at his word. You got to trust him. Now listen, I get it. I truly understand this. I truly get it when somebody says to me, how do you know that that is true? I don't believe that. I don't believe what's in this. I get it. I get the struggle of an atheist or an agnostic. But you know what? Atheist and agnostic, I'm going to tell you, you're basing your life on something that you think is true. This has proven itself to me over and over and over. Not only is it more historically reliable than any, any, any book of history, it has proven to be more historically reliable. We have more manuscripts of this than any other one. But it's proven itself experientially. Get in the word, let God prove himself to you. Your faith will grow. Zechariah learned a valuable lesson, and God would be merciful to him. Look at verse 63. Starts at verse 59, and on the eighth day when they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, that was kind of customary, Zechariah couldn't speak, couldn't hear, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea he's on mission because his faith was finally strengthened look at the second way that we get on mission just like John did we must get people ready to receive Jesus we must get people ready to receive Jesus now Gabriel told Zechariah verse 16 and he will turn away, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
And later, verse 76, I'm going to get you, I'm all, you're all in chapter 1, but just go down to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is Zechariah blessing his baby John. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. John was not the Messiah. He was the forerunner. He was the herald. You know what his mission was? It was to announce the advent, the coming of a very notable person, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Now, you know what a, you know what a herald did, right? They had a job. There were actually heralds called forerunners that the kings of ancient days would send out before they would either go to war or go on a mission of peace. If they were going on a war, the king rode a horse. If they were on a mission of peace, the king rode a donkey. But he sent the herald out a month before he went out so that he could prepare. The herald would prepare the towns to greet him. The job of the herald was to clear the roads, rebuild the roads if they needed to after the spring floods, but to get the logs and the fallen trees out of the roads, to get the rocks and the cobblestones back in. The herald's job was to prepare the people to receive their king. John was a herald. He was a forerunner. But his preparation was not the earthly roads. His preparation was the, the road to the heart. And he prepared them using two methods. Here's what John did. By the way, same thing we do. He preached the gospel, a gospel of repentance, and he baptized he preached and he baptized. He preached the same theme in all of his sermons. You think mine are boring? Listen, I wish you'd just sit under John's for a little bit. Here's all he said. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then every once in a while to throw in a little spice, he would say that God has spread his feet. He put the axe at the base of the tree to measure his swing and he's about to chop the axe down. Israel, by the way, you're the tree. Yeah, it's kind of pretty awesome to be able to throw in illustrations like that. It's what John did. He preached. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming. He's establishing his kingdom. And if you don't want to be on the outside looking in, then you've got to repent. You've got to realize that you're a sinner like everybody else on the planet. And you've got to realize that a sinner can't fix his or her own problem. They're in a plight, a problem, a condition they cannot heal. Somebody outside of them has to fix them. And God's the only one that can take sin away. He baptized them, which was a sign that they got it. I get it. I'm a sinner. I'm repenting. I'm asking God to forgive me. Here's my public declaration that I've asked him and that he's forgiven me and that I'm one of his children. Now, our adventure, Christian brother and sister, is no different. Jesus makes this crystal clear in Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, we're in this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This isn't just for the pastor. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
We have the same mission. This is our adventure, and Christmas is the time to remember it. Let me give you one more. I've only got time for one more. One more way that we serve in this great mission, this great adventure, like John the Baptist. Number three, we must be different than the unbelievers around us. We've got to be different. Now, Gabriel said in verse 15, Luke chapter 1, he said to John in that holy place, your son will be great before the Lord, Zechariah, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then Gabriel said to him, verse 17, he will go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's different. Now, if you've had a beer in the last week, or a shot of bourbon, or even some in our church, a cigar to go with it, I don't think that means that God doesn't like you anymore. I grew up in a church environment that tried to prove that Christians could never ever drink alcohol and never smoke. It was a church environment that really focused on the external behaviors and not so much on the heart. Don't be a stumbling block when you have that beer. Don't be a stumbling block when you have that cigar. If you smoke a cigarette, you're going to hell. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not what it means here that John was different. It means that John wanted nothing to do with, his, with anything, or John the Baptist, nothing to do with anything that would clog his heart with God. He would be full of courage. He would refuse to compromise to the world. Go down to verse 80. You want to see what John's going to look like? You want to see what his life is going to be like? And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Meaning that he stepped apart from all of the worldly ambitions and focused on God. You want to be useful to unbelievers? You want to show them how awesome and good and merciful Jesus is? You better not be like them because they're not going to listen. You're not showing them anything. You'd be different from them. You have hope. You have faith. You have love. You have mercy. You don't compromise. You're not inclusive, meaning that everybody can get to heaven regardless of their religion. Everybody can get to heaven regardless of their lifestyle. Listen, that's not the gospel, but neither do you shut them out by telling them God hates you, because that's not true. You're governed by love, and you show them grace and mercy and kindness, and you teach them the truth. John separated himself from worldly living. He devoted himself to God. He became strong in his faith. You will not influence this unbelieving world if you live like the world lives. And we grow in spiritual disciplines, Christian. We say no to activities that the world would say yes to. We refuse that which can defile us, and we pursue God. We do what the evangelist D.H. Moody once said, or D.L. Moody. He quoted the words of Henry Varley. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully dedicated to him. By God's help, I am to be that man. 
Aim to be that man. Aim to be that woman that dedicates himself, herself to God. And watch what God does in your life on this great adventure as he shows the unbelieving world what Jesus looks like. Full of grace, full of kindness, full of purity, full of love, full of beauty. So this Christmas, now listen to this. This Christmas, let's live an adventurous life. Like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, like their son John did. Let's be a Christian of great faith. Let's get people ready to receive Jesus. Let's live differently than the world. Amen? Let's pray.